spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Hi, it's Ambien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish i am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable to me to keep the running costs this podcast going and enjoy take care bye-bye spoken hi guys and the end spoken label back in the house we've got a lovely lady with me today as well and called carol orange now carol is the actual writer of a, a book that's now just come out at the moment called a discerning eye and Carol, obviously, obviously, you've done a lot. You've been, you've, you've certainly been around the place where you've been living as well. So, so obviously, tell people about. So, it's quite a bit we can talk about here because I want you to just first of all take everything back to the beginning of where all your creativity came from, and we'll start from there. Oh, okay. Um, so, thank you so much, Andy, for having me on your um, uh, program today. So um, I, I majored in art history at Cornell University, and I've always been, you know, really fascinated by art. Um, after I graduated, I lived in London and worked on a book of Spanish art. It was in a series of art books. I worked for uh, a British publisher and my husband was an academic. He was researching his thesis. So um, uh, my advisor on the book of Spanish art was named Xavier de Salas, and he was a very wonderful man. He later became the director of the Prado Museum. So then when we left London, my husband had a job in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, I worked at the Atlantic Monthly Press for a while, but you know, my passion's always been art. So um, I had a gallery in Boston and when the robbery at the Isabella Gardner Museum happened in 1990, March, 18th at 1.30 in the morning, uh, I was horrified as well as everyone in the city of Boston because 
the Isabella Gardner Museum is really a gem. It's a Venetian palace. And Isabella was very fortunate to be able to hire Bernard Berenson, who was leading expert in Renaissance art. So her collection included Renaissance art and some particularly um, amazing paintings like Titian's The Rape of Europa, which is actually now on loan at the National Gallery of Art in London. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> so I was horrified that this could happen in our, you know, little city at our special gem of a museum that 13 art objects were stolen. The thieves had the run of the place for 81 minutes. And so they took, you know, 13 art objects, including one of my favorites, Vermeer's The Concert. And there are only 36 of Vermeer's paintings wow. in existence. Wow. So it was heartbreaking, <laughs> really, yeah. really. It's obviously the best of making people aware, obviously, about the book we're going to be talking about today. Which is, we obviously touched on it already, haven't we? So, which obviously is um, Discurting Eye, which obviously is talking about this topic itself. So, like I said, it's a, I remember when I spoke to your agent about this, I was just shocked by it completely. Okay, it's just if it's something like you think you see in a movie near it, really, as you said already, they had 81 minutes inside this, this place completely. And it's like to get away with 13 paintings like that, it's just absolutely incredible. I could really complete in that. So now, obviously, then tell us about what made you want to write the book, then, The Discurting Eye. Uh, okay. So, um, in addition to being, you know, uh, an art historian, I also, um, you know, studied English literature. And my dream was always to be a writer. Um, I've had some short stories published, um, but I've had, you know, other jobs, other interests. And so I never really uh, uh, gave myself the luxury of writing full time. So I was so angry <laughs> that the police and the FBI weren't finding the artwork. Um, and they, you know, the, the FBI didn't seem to take the robbery as seriously as the rest of us in Boston. I mean, they were investigating the mafia for the cocaine trade. And so in the hierarchy of their, uh, uh, of, of their endeavors, the investigating the Arts Act wasn't their number one priority. So I was so angry about this. And also they weren't mentioning the paintings. I mean, they mentioned, you know, a, a particular Rembrandt of um, Christ crossing the Sea of Galilee because it's the only painting like that that Rembrandt did. I mean, he mainly did portraits. So um, I decided that I would analyze the stolen art and um, look at each painting and art object 
And I found that there was a consistent underlying theme. It was the tension between dark and light that was apparent in the Degas drawings that they stole in the Rembrandt paintings, including his self-portrait, and in the Manet chez Tortoni, which was in another room downstairs, um, you know, it's a small painting by Manet of this man who is all dressed up in his top hat and tails and sitting at a cafe, but half his face is in shadow. So yeah. I found this underlying theme and I thought, you know, I think that the thief stole the paintings that spoke to him, not, not the people who entered the museum. They, they, were not, they were not really the ones who, um, they just carried out orders. Um, they were not stealing the paintings for themselves, but for someone else, this was my hypothesis. And so, you know, the fact that the thief stole these specific paintings, not Titian's Rape of Europa, uh, not Giotto's um, really precious little painting, not Michelangelo's drawing, which was right next to the Degas drawings, not the even more valuable uh, Italian art. They, they stole specific paintings, mainly in the Dutch room and the nearby short gallery. And so, you know, there was something behind this. It really felt like there was a shopping list. And so I started to write about it. And then, you know, I had always been intimidated about writing a novel. A novel is a huge undertaking. It's not like short story. Um, but I said, you know, I think I am going to write this novel. And it took me 10 years on and off. I mean, I wasn't, I had a full-time job, so I didn't write every minute in 10 years. Yeah, of course, yeah. But you got the, I think you find that sometimes I'm, I'm a writer myself and I've got the dreaded full-time job. And it's just trying to get time in it when you're doing your life outside writing to get the time to do it. Oh, wow, yeah. So did you find, an, as um, when you got towards the end of the book, had it changed radically from when you first started it off? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I had uh, a character... I developed this character, one of the, there were two police, two people posing as police who got into the museum. There were only two night guards and they were students. Um, and so one, I made one of the police a um, Asian man and I traced his a journey from Hong Kong where he had been a fisherman and then he worked in a Chinese restaurant in Boston. And um, I, I was really rather fond of him. <laughs> um, so I created this character. Um, and then at, at some point in his 
journey, he encounters the head of the Italian mafia in um, Boston. And um, so I realized as I was getting, you know, towards the end of the novel that there were just too many characters and I, I sadly cut him out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes you get to a stage like that, don't you? When when the book is yeah. getting so long, you've got to be yeah. ruthless sometimes, and otherwise you, yeah. you end up doing what those token would do, could write 1,400-page novels, and you, yeah. you can't, you, it's not realistic sometimes completely with that. So, yeah. Now... I also want to ask you as well, because there's a couple of things I asked you today as well. Um, I know obviously we've got you've got an audible version of this knocking around as well. And I was going through the cast of this before. And I was impressed to see you've got Campbell Scott doing obviously who I know from Mark, been Mark Usher in House of Cards. It's one of my friend's favourite series, is House of Cards. So I'm gonna refer him over to the audio book for this, definitely so. Oh, I, yeah, well, Campbell is a very special person, and his wife, Kathleen McElfrish, is an actress. But um, I met Campbell and Kathleen in um, New York when I was living in New York. And, um, you know, they are just wonderful, wonderful people. So, you know, I, I met them through some documentary filmmakers that mm. I knew. Campbell had been the moderator um, for one of the films that they made. And I mean, he's just such a talented actor. And he's from, you know, what I call acting royalty. You know, his father was George C. Scott and his mom was Colleen Dewhurst and, and you know, both extraordinary actors. So You call it in England, he's an actor. Oh, <laughs> actor. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, I, you know, I'm very fond of them. So I negotiated this with, I asked him if he would do it and then I negotiated this with his agent and then we found a recording studio near where he was living in Connecticut because it was during the height of the pandemic and you know there was no way he could come to New York but I was I was really thrilled because um, aside from being super talented he's one of the most gracious people you could ever hope to meet. <laughs> That's as well. So in, I, I was, in some ways, obviously, when it's in the height of lockdown, it's not a bad thing for an actor that, because like his availability was probably more, he probably could have probably done the project for you much more easily. And I suspect because you knew him anyway, didn't you? Like I said, he would have done it for you anyway. But like I said, over lockdown, he's got more probably more time for you, probably hasn't he, to give, give it the attention it needs. Yes. Yes, no, I, I um, you know, really think the audio version turned out really well, um, you know, and it was great to have Kathleen. She did the beginning and she she can be a bit of a comic. <laughs> 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 yeah, and you said you sent the link over to me. I was really impressed. Her, and I thought because um, your agent sent over the actual mob to me to have a look at and then she said, I got a copy of the audio book as well. And I was sat there thinking, this is fantastic. Both the oh. books are really good. But like it was, but the audio book, what I've heard of it is sometimes it, 
if you get a really good voice artist doing it for you, it can make a big difference, I think, sometimes. Yes, I, I think a huge, huge difference. Um, you know, I listened to um, The Splendid in the Vile, the audiobook, and the um, British actor, <laughs> I can't remember his name right now, but he imitated so many different accents and he, he was just, he really made it come to life. And I think that's what really talented audiobook actors do. Is oh, yeah, completely. completely. My partner, Amanda, yeah. and she's a novelist herself, and, and I know she was listening to two last two Philip Pullman books. And if a memory is correct, they were then both narrated by Mike, Michael Sheen, if you're familiar with him as an actor. And he's just, and I know she was saying it really brought them to life. He did. She enjoyed him anyway, but he made a big, he did make a difference to it. So now I can really completely with that. So now I want to ask you as well, because one thing we've not touched on, I know you were living in Paris at one point, weren't you as well? Uh, yeah. Yes, I did live in Paris. Lucky me. <laughs> I lived there um, from. 1990 to 92, um, it was a self-imposed sabbatical. Mm -hmm. um, I um, knew, um, you know, through my art gallery, I knew um, a Parisian woman who was really wonderful. Um, and the art market in well everywhere at that time was was really tough and i had so many people owing me money from you know that had purchased art including banks as a matter of fact um that i said well you know i i'm gonna do what i can to collect the money that i can but i never went into uh the art world to to be a money collector <laughs> so um, <laughs> i you know my husband and i we rented our house um and we you know went off to live in paris and that's really when i took my writing i began to take my writing more seriously and um you know i joined a writing group um i studied french and I also research um, the life and writing of Georges Sand, who was formidable. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, 100, 100 books in her lifetime. Oh my gosh. Wow, and that's... all her fascinating lovers, including, you know, Frederick Chopin. So um, I had a lot of fun going to um, the Bibliothèque Nationale and researching her life. And then I would go to the ninth arrondissement where the romantics, that's what they were called, where the romantics lived. So I saw where she lived. Um, and then I went to her country house, uh, Nohant, in you know, the heart of France. It's called the Berry region. And wow. Yeah, she really was extraordinary because she couldn't get published except under a male pseudonym. You know, women had absolutely no rights. And, you know, she raised 
two children. Her husband was, I would say he was abusive. So she did somehow manage to divorce him. And, oh, one of her lovers was her lawyer. And he <laughs> helped her. <laughs> he helped her hold on to her grandmother's chateau, which is in Nohant. But she was really interesting because her mother was the daughter of a bird seller in Paris. Oh, right, right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he, he would sell birds along the Seine. And um, wow. her father was in the military and he was from, you know, a sort of lesser nobility, as it were. So uh, she was she was extraordinary, just extraordinary. So I had a lot of fun um, researching her life. I read not all hundred books, but quite a few. <laughs> and then when I returned to Boston, um, one of my neighbors in Boston was a concert pianist. So we put on a series of salons at the French library in Boston. And she played Chopin and I read from Georges Sand's writing and it was wow. a lot of fun. Yeah. Wow. You could say, I think, am I right in thinking, obviously, living in France like you did, that probably really got you going with it, if you're writing really, didn't it? As to it led into the book you were obviously here to talk about today. So it feels like it there because I think that was like a trigger to you really, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. straight away. Yeah. Now I've got to ask you a quick question about the book because it's something I forgot to ask you before as well, and was based about the lead character. Now there's a quote I've noticed got on the Boston Globe, where where obviously your major your main character in the book is Porter and that Martessa. Have I got that right? Portia. A Portia. Portia. My, yeah. my pronunciation is crap at the best of times. <laughs> oh, but I'll be on. I'll be honest. But um, I loved what you put here is on, and this came up in the Boston Globe. Was I love the fact where you said in this where the comparisons like you twin and that the character were were, were similar, but you then quoted she's much braver than I am. Added in the novel, she was willing to risk her life, tangling with dangerous criminals to get the stolen paintings back. Now, right. Did you feel when you were creating that main main character? Obviously, there was a lot of you in that main character because I think there is a writers anyway. But did you find like it was hard to actually give her the make it more fictional? Um, yeah, no, I think you know. I mean, Portia Malatesta was a very, um, I would say, idealized version of who I would love to be. I mean, we did share, we do share the love of art. And, we, you know, we are both <laughs> sleuths in a way. I'm always wondering why this happened, why that happened, and, you know, look for the clues. Um, ever since the days when I read Agatha Christie and uh, Nancy Drew. And, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, um, but Portia actually does risk her life going to Medellin, Colombia, where um, the FBI believes 
that they have uh, a hot lead of who the mastermind of the theft was. And, um, you know, she goes there during a time when, you know, Pablo Escobar was uh, running the cocaine trade and it was a pretty lethal time. I mean, people were killed. Uh, there were lots of drive-by shootings in the barrio and, you know, her husband rightly did not want her to risk her life going there, but she felt she had to um, for two reasons. <laughs> One was um, her brother, Antonio, uh, loved Vermeer's The Concert, and it was he was an artist, and that was his favorite painting, and they used to sit um, at the gardener and look at this painting together. So she lost her brother. He committed suicide and she was devastated. And so when the concert was stolen, it was like whatever, you know, it was like Antonio's soul was stolen again. And she, she had to find, help find the artwork for him and also for Isabella Gardner because she resonated to um, Isabella Gardner's very strong-willed personality because Isabella Gardner went through uh, a lot of tragedy too. She lost her son when he was very young. So uh, um, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I understand completely. So yeah, now. That's pretty well covered all my questions on, obviously, the book today. But I've got to ask you a couple of quick questions in addition to conclude with. And the one I always like asking is, what plans do you have next for your creativity? And I know you're currently writing another novel, aren't you, at the moment? Which seems to be, interesting enough, I was teasing off mic before about this, about art theft. And I'm, start, I'm starting to wonder here, is are you, a, are you a secret bank robber or something, or an art, art gallery theft, if you've not told me? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, I, I do, I mean, we could talk for hours about art theft. Um, I think it's a fascinating subject. Um, you know, why... Why do people steal art? You know, um, why? What motivates them to steal art? And um, you know, uh, my next book um, is is about Nazi stolen art. I mean, Hitler and Goring were avid art collectors, and they put together incredible collections, you know, Hitler was planning this museum in Linz and they used all kinds of horrible ways of obtaining, you know, illegal, horrible ways of obtaining art, you know, many, many from, you know, Jewish families that they were persecuting, but also, you know, wasn't exclusively um, Jewish families. Um, you know, they, they just were so greedy. And, you know, Goring is quoted as saying, 
Well, you know, when I look at great art, it just makes me feel so good. I mean, he felt entitled to do what he did. And so, you know, um, I, I won't go into Hitler's personality because that's been too well documented, but Goering really was a, a very, it wasn't just that he was greedy, he felt that art, owning art enhanced his life, enhanced his personality. So, you know, some people steal art just because they think they can sell it. I mean, you know, they, they just grab what's closest to the door and um, of a museum or a church or some place where art exists. And they think they can sell it on the black market. But in the case of Goring and, and Hitler, it was to enhance their lives. So the motivation behind it really does fascinate me. I mean, it horrifies me, but it also fascinates me that people can be so obsessed with this, that they are willing to do this. And um, so that's what my second book is about. It's, it's um, uh, Portia and Julian Henderson, who worked at the FBI and the art crime team, they are now working together as private investigators, and they're going to Germany for a family in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that wants their patrimony. Brilliant. Good luck with it, definitely. So hopefully this won't take you 10 years to write this one. No, I <laughs> promise you it won't. <laughs> but I know, I it's quick question, obviously, before we conclude, obviously, and I can't ask you, but um, do you, what do you think to the myth like I say, the first novel is always the most difficult book to write, and then obviously after that, everything's easier, really. I've read, I've read writers saying that before. Well, I think it's easier in the sense that I'm no longer intimidated because I've done it. But writing a novel is really a labor of love. Oh, yeah, completely, yeah. completely. I mean, the amount of revisions that you do until you get it right so it all hangs together is really remarkable. No one ever told me that it would be so hard. But it is very rewarding. I mean, when you're sitting alone with your computer and writing, I mean, the time just flies and it's so much fun. You know, it's so exciting. It's like, oh, I, I created this character <laughs> who doesn't exist in real life, even though I may have done a lot of research on, on the subject. But it will be, it is, I've, I'm already on my first draft, um, chap, uh, chapter 23, and I know <laughs> it's not going to take me 10 years. Hopefully. Good. Good. <laughs> but it depends. If you go for like right, 300 of ch 300 of more chapters, then it might take you 10 years. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with Carol, definitely, seriously, okay? Keep in touch with us. Let us know how you're going with it. So now, if people want to find out more about you, just to wrap up, obviously, you've got your website, haven't you? So 
I'm presuming your website's the best place for you people to go to find out more about you, isn't it, really? Yes, yes. And it's a very easy website to go to, which is www.carolorange.com. And by the way, Orange is my real name. It's my maiden name. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask that because I'm always a believer. Let the person tell me. I was wondering, I was wondering actually if that was your real name, actually. So that's <laughs> what I Yes. But it's one way, it's, it's, I suppose, like I said, doing that, it makes it easier for people to find you on the net, doesn't it, really? Because if, like, your yes. maiden name was Carol Smith, it'd be like... <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's hard. That's really, really hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, okay. Well, I know you're going to do a little extract because we book for us, so hang around, everybody, because it's been a, I've really enjoyed today, Carol. So thank you for this. I've really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you so much, Andy. I really enjoyed it. Um, it you know, it's been great. Um, thank you for the interview, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend with your family. So, oh, come on, we'll tell you, I'll tell you about that off mic in a minute, definitely. Because so, <laughs> it's a busy time <laughs> over here. But we'll see you all in part two, guys. See you in a minute. Spoken me. Hi, guys. I'm still here with Carol, and she's going to do a short extract of this book. Over to you, Carol. Thank you, Andy. Okay, chapter seven, March 27, 1990. The mafia had to be involved. As the days went by, the talk in the media about the art theft dwelt on false leads and dead ends. Although the museum had reopened, the staff was still in shock. Visitors stood without talking in front of the Dutch rooms, empty frames. Shortly after the robbery, the museum decided to keep the plundered walls as they had been left. The empty frames served as a constant reminder to the public of their loss. And by keeping the stolen masterpieces alive, so to speak, the staff hoped for their imminent return. To Portia's dismay, no one had been caught with the paintings hidden in a truck or a van. The collective voice of the newscasters was still focused on the theory that a network of art thieves had committed the crimes. Yet Portia remained convinced one person had masterminded the robbery. If only to honor her brother's memory, she was determined to continue analyzing the paintings until she could draw a profile of the thief. Also, her museum, the museum where she worked as a docent, the museum of Isabella deserved her full attention. Portia was even willing to enlist Nick Moretti's help. She now realized she must overcome her revulsion about the mafia, because in this case, they could be useful. Her gut instinct told her the mafia was somehow involved in the heist. Possibly the faux policemen were trained henchmen. Who else but the mafia would do this dirty work? Nick had told her the underworld had a network of its own and gossip about who did what to whom traveled along its wires. She'd asked Nick to put her in touch with some of those very men. Maybe one of them knew where the paintings were hidden. 
Fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. Obviously, not as rich as Campbell's voices, but still very, very well read yeah, indeed. <laughs> Brilliant. I've really <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you today for that, Campbell. I've really, really enjoyed this. So hang around. I do need to speak to you off mic and sort out a couple of technical things before we conclude tonight. But it's been a pleasure today. I've really, really enjoyed this. Well, me too, Andy. Thank you so much. And have a great Father's Day in Manchester. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> As Don Callis says, guys and girls, to conclude over Impact Wrestling, stay safe and stay over. And we'll see you all soon. Spoken, mate.